technology they had in the 80s or uh, the only difference was the internet it started to become a thing um you know in the early 2000s late 90s early 2000s yeah so that's really the only difference uh for us but uh you know the term millennial didn't exist when we were kids uh so i always assumed we were generation x that's what i always thought too but I don't know if that's even still a thing. Yeah, like I always thought that we were in Generation X, you know, growing up watching Beavis and Butthead and Simpsons and uh, shit like that. Saturday morning cartoons when there was only like, what, three to five stations on your TV. And I don't know what your first TV was, but our first TV was one of those big wooden like box TVs that like sit on the ground. Yeah, mine wasn't wooden, but it was, um, it had like legs coming off of it. Ours didn't uh, even have legs. It was just a thing. It had a dial Yep, but the dial did. broke off, so there was just some uh, um, pliers, yep. uh, vice yeah. grips, yep. uh, tightened onto the um, thing where the dial would be, and that's how you turn the channel. Yeah. But and there was only like 10 channels, or ours was I don't know. I don't know. Sure we many. lived out in the middle of nowhere, so ours was less. Uh, we only had like, yeah, we I think at max we had like five, and like two of them weren't really anything. They weren't even channels. Like, they were like just static stations or whatever. Yeah. Of. And, uh, but yeah, our TV didn't even have legs on it. It was just, it was huge, but it was just a big, like, wooden box style TV that sat on the ground and didn't have legs or anything. And it, on both sides of it, where the speakers must have been, had like that, I don't know what you want to call it, and almost, not wicker, but it looks kind of like, you know what it's I'm like talking about? It's like what a, that's where the speakers are, yeah. Yeah, but it was like that, style. yeah, it was like the weird, you know, like, beige and orange, like, and brown, like, weird wicker you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm not sure the name of I don't know what that's called either, but... Mesh? <laughs> yeah, weird mesh thing. And our first phone, at least at my dad's house, was an actual uh, rotary phone. That was our phone. Yeah, my grandpa had a rotary, rotary, rotary phone in his office and in the garage. Uh, but we had a regular push-button push phone as our regular phone. And then we had a cordless you know, home phone. Also, eventually we like in the eventually we got late nineties. Yeah, around eventually there. we got those things. But in the beginning, when I was a kid, I remember us having a rotary phone. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I grew up on the west side of Albuquerque, um, which is like a uh, kind of like a Mexican neighborhood. Kind of, I guess. Uh, all of Albuquerque is kind of like that. Um, grew up on the west side. Went to all the schools on the west side. Um, I graduated from high school in 2005, uh, which is actually coming up on 20 years pretty soon here. What would be 20 years from 2005? 2025? Uh, yeah, 2025. Because my, I'm pretty sure my 15-year reunion is this year, I think. 2006. Yeah, so I graduated 2006, so yeah, I'm pretty sure our 15 years yeah. this year. Yeah, that would be 15. So this summer, they theoretically should be having one if they, if they someone, I, I don't know, yeah, if, if someone puts it together. I didn't go to the last one, so I don't know, but. Yeah, I graduated in 2005. Um, growing up, I was heavily into skateboarding um, and punk rock music. Um, I started skateboarding before I learned how to ride a bike, as far as I can remember. Um, I skateboarded all the way up until high school and then still a little bit after high school. Um, but I was heavily into it, so that's really all I did every day. Um, and it's ironic because as an adult, 
Skateboarding came back to kill him. Yeah, skateboarding has haunted me here and there mm-hmm. throughout my life. But, uh, yeah, I would skateboard every single day. Um, I got good at skateboarding uh, eventually. Um, so I was heavily involved in the local Albuquerque skateboarding community at that time. Um, if I would go to the skate park or... Uh, later on when they built multiple different skate parks like Los Altos and uh, uh, the original Concrete Wave, a few other places. Um, there was a few people in town uh, who everyone knew, and I was one of those people at that time. Um, me and uh, Joey Lucero, uh, DJ Chavez, uh, multiple other people. Um, uh, I loved uh, Beach Zone Skate Shop, Skate City Supply. Uh, skated all the main spots in Albuquerque, El Dorado High School, Cibola, um, West Mesa. <laughs> a lot of words that I don't know. This is all information that really, I guess, if you don't, if you're not from Albuquerque, it's kind of irrelevant. But the gist of it is, I was heavily into skateboarding, and I spent the majority of my time skateboarding. And when I wasn't skateboarding, I was watching skateboard. Uh, movies like uh, uh, Fulfill the Dream, uh, Minik Mahdi by S, Sorry by Flip, um, Jump Off a Building, uh, all the original um, skate movies. Um, and then through skateboarding, uh, that led me into punk rock music because at the time, it, well, it was still transforming in the 90s, but uh, before rap had an influence on skateboarding, it was primarily a punk rock. Punk rock, punk rock, and skateboarding kind of went hand in hand for a long time until uh, the '90s when shorties became popular. Uh, then hip hop started to influence skateboarding as well. Um, but I was of the punk rock uh, variation, <laughs> so that's what led me into punk rock music, which led me to become a punk rocker. Uh, basically right away. Um, I went to my first punk rock concert when I was 11 uh, to see Gutter Mouth and Against All Authority, I think. Um, so that was your first punk rock concert. Had you been to any other concerts before then or no? Um, yeah. I had like, s- what was your very first concert ever? Oh, not man. Not just punk, just any... I think, uh, I don't know if I went to that Bush concert. No, I don't think so. I, I think I had seen a few different local live shows before that, that not necessarily punk rock bands, but um, just like regular mainstream bands or local bands, but not necessarily punk rock. Because in, in Albuquerque, there's lots of live music. Um, so... Yeah, there's uh, lots of places that you go, or at least used to be, um, there'd be a band playing or something like that. Um, but my first punk rock concert was um, Gutter Mouth at the Launch Pad in Albuquerque, which is famous if anyone's been there. Um, after I went to that first punk concert, I realized that I loved punk music, and it was the first time I'd ever actually um, felt like uh, it was somewhere where I was going to fit in. It, I had never really fit in 
uh, too much other than skateboarding um, with the people that I went to school with. Uh, so that first punk concert was what led me to get into the punk scene heavily and then um, eventually led to me being in a band uh, with the people that uh, I first started hanging out with. Um, we, we started a band together and then through the band that led me more and more into the punk rock scene of Albuquerque. Um, yeah, so just hundreds of concerts, either playing them or watching them, um, going to shows constantly as much as possible. Uh, yeah, definitely a lot of heavy partying, drinking, drug use, stuff like that. Uh, which that all led to me being uh, pretty much I was incompatible with living with my mom um, by the age of 16. Um, I pretty much did everything a teenager could do to make it so that their parents would want to kick them out. <laughs> Just not coming home on time, drinking and driving, uh, lying about where I was going, but actually going to another person's house. Um, you know, all the things you don't want a kid to do. That's what I was doing. Uh, but I luckily had a job. So I think I was 14 or 15 when I first started at High Noon Restaurant um, as a busboy. So by the time I was 16, I was already working at least 30 hours a week or more. Because I was working this much, uh, it allowed me to have enough money. So when my mom uh, and I were at a crossroads, I was able to live on my own because I made enough money to pay for my insurance on my car and uh, afford my first um, place. Um, but actually, I think, no. My first place I moved out was at Victor's. Yeah, it was your friend's house Yeah, first. and I, I don't think I paid anything to live there, I don't think. Maybe I did, I don't know. But if I did, it wasn't that much. And then the next place I lived at was, uh, that was with uh, Anthony and Jessica and Jake. So I was the fourth member of this house, and two of them were boyfriend and girlfriend, and then the other one was the brother of the girlfriend, and then I was number four. So I, um, at first I was able to sleep in this one back room area, solo. It was like a little tiny, it was like a closet basically, but it, it was big enough to fit my sleeping bag in there on this twin mattress. So that was good, but then um, they would get in arguments constantly, and that was actually the girlfriend's bed. So whenever they'd get in arguments, she would take her room back and go sleep in there. So then I'd have to go sleep um, out in the living room, <laughs> and for some reason, I didn't sleep on the couch. Um, I would just sleep between this weight bench and the wall on my sleeping bag on the ground. Uh, and I did that for probably like, probably a year, six months to a year I did that. Um, that was the second place I lived. And then the third place was the Stilts. That was the first place I where I lived um, completely under my own like place. So I... How old were you then? Um, I think I was 17. Okay. So when I was 17, I moved into the Stilts. Uh, which was uh, off of lead. Um, they call it the stilts because 
it had four posts or you know big uh, columns and you to park you had to drive underneath and there was like one story of just the parking it wasn't a garage it was just open but you could park your cars under there and then it had like three levels or maybe just two of apartments above and uh i rented the apartment from this i'll never forget the guy's name ahmet um he was middle eastern and uh, he didn't ask me any questions whatsoever about renting the apartment. I just went to the apartment. It said for rent. I literally just walked up, knocked on the door. The guy gave me an application. I filled it out right there. And I think that was it. I think he just gave me uh, the list of what I needed to do. And then I think I came back with the money. And then I think I was moved in by that next month. Um, that was a pretty good experience because it taught me... A lot of things really quickly uh, that I didn't really know before, like um, you have to buy toilet paper, toothpaste, uh, cleaning supplies, uh, all kinds of shit that I hadn't previously ever bought because someone else had already had that stuff when I had lived at the other places. So it was a pretty good learning curve. Um, yeah, then uh, I don't know. I, I lived a... You know, I so I moved out at 16 and I lived at many different places. Um, uh, eventually, I still went to high school, graduated high school 2005, um, ended up uh, becoming an electrician um, in 2000. You know, at the end of 2005, um, I started uh, as an apprentice electrician, I did that until 2008. Uh, then Kind of lost my mind a bit there. Um, Elaborate. I'm not sure what was going on, but from from 2005 to 2008, I worked as an apprentice electrician. Um, I could tell that everyone I worked with wasn't very happy with their (laughs) careers. And I felt like I was turning into an old man really quick because everyone that I worked with was either 30 and above. But the most of the people I worked with were in their 40s or 50s, and uh, they were all kind of disgruntled uh, <laughs> people who definitely, uh, it seemed to me like they wished they had chosen a different path. Um, so it kind of uh, wore me down after a while uh, working with all these people who were constantly talking about how much they didn't really like it that much. So it kind of led me to, into a... Um, just not liking my job that much after a while and then just I've always had problems with depression so that didn't help and then I was just kind of lost in life Uh, just drinking and partying and still working and just trying to do too much at once I think and uh, so it led me to just spontaneously quit my job and cash out my 401k which was like $5,000 $5,000 or something like that. And then I, li- I used that money to live um, until I joined the army. Um, and then, yeah, so I joined the army in 2008. In April of 2008, I uh, went to Fort Benning, Georgia, um, which is the home of the infantry. I joined as an infantryman. At that time, in 2008, they we're offering a $20,000 sign-on bonus um, if you signed up to be an infantry. 
so I picked that. Um, it wasn't a lump sum though. It was, was spread out over like your enlistment. So like every anniversary of your enlistment, you would get like $5,000 or something like that. So yeah, I did that. Went to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, went to basic training there. I was in Charlie Company 254. Um, yeah, on Sand Hill. That was quite the... <laughs> That was quite the uh, change of scenery because up until that point, I was, uh, I don't know, a punk rocker, um, hanging out with punk rockers all the time, living an alternative kind of lifestyle not with not many rules that much, you know, other than my job, you know, just go to work on time, all that. But uh, so the army was kind of a interesting change of pace uh i was 21 when i joined i had just turned 21 and um yeah so i went to fort benning uh graduated from basic training in um i think august of 2008 and then while i was in basic training i got orders to go to germany so half the people in my uh company went to germany and the other half went to hawaii so i went to germany with like 10 other people or maybe like 20 other people. Um, yeah, my first duty station was Grafenbeer, Germany. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the same uh, base that Elvis was stationed at when he was in the army, surprisingly enough. Uh, Grafenbeer is like the tr one of the training hubs of Germany. So there's two. One's Graf and the other one's Hohenfels. I was stationed at Graf. But a lot of our um, training grounds were kind of... Um, not really up to par, so the majority of the the hardcore training was done at Hohenfels. But I was assigned to Second Battalion, twenty eighth Infantry Regiment, uh, of the one seventy second Infantry Brigade. Um, when I got to the unit, it had previously been the First Infantry Division, which is heavily revered with lots of history. Um, but about six months prior to me getting there, they had reflagged. To the 172nd Infantry Brigade, so uh, yeah, it was kind of a downer because I, I assumed that I was going to be in the, the first ID, the Brig Red 1, but um, that didn't turn out to be the case. Um, I also learned that I was going to a rapidly deploying unit, so when I got to Germany, all the people in my unit were, were at Hohenfels training to go to Iraq, so when I got there, everyone was in the field, so I, I missed the train up for Iraq. Um, I was just a late, uh, person coming to the unit. So there's like me and 10 other people roughly, uh, that I knew personally that were in that same boat. So when we got to Germany, um, we waited for them to get back from the field and then started training, uh, did very minimal training, just zeroed my M4, qualified on my 203, which is a grenade launcher, um, I did a, a few field exercises, but super short, and then uh, we deployed to Iraq in November uh, 27th, I think, of 2008, and then uh, deployed to Babel province in Iraq, um, which was one hour south of Baghdad. Uh, first, I was stationed at Bob Kalsu. Then we got different orders and went to PB Hilla, Patrol Base Hilla. 
it was a company size uh, patrol base in the middle of um, Al Hilla, Iraq. Uh, so it was like basically just a little tiny fort uh, with sandbag barriers around it um, in the middle of a of a livable city. So it was very awkward for the people that the Iraqis who were living there. I'm sure because we were just in the middle of their land, uh, right by this river. And, um, yeah, um, it's kind of a nothing happened deployment. Um, fortunately, yeah, nothing happened to me personally. Uh, we had very minimal like rocket attacks here and there, mortars, um, coming all the time, but there were bunkers. So whenever you hear the, the alarms just run to a bunker and you know nothing ever would happen uh some exploded in within the perimeter but it wasn't like that big a deal no one got hurt uh one guy while he was shitting uh a mortar landed and uh shrapnel went through the porta potty while he was taking a shit oh, God. <laughs> but oh, not, it didn't hit him it so it was uh Everyone made fun of him after that. It was comical. So after that happened, they made you wear your full um, kit when you had to go take a shit. <laughs> so anyone who's in the so army... So you can sweat. So first of all, you got the shit sweats. Then you got fucking wherever you are, Middle Eastern sweats. Oh my God. And then mortars then, flying at you. And you're in a porta potty. Oh my God. Which is hotter than fuck uh, itself. So it was like uh, a trifecta of uh, downer... Um, but yeah, I, I never got a CIB while I was in Iraq. A CIB is a combat infantryman's badge. Um, there were a few people who got one, uh, but they weren't in my platoon. And they got one kind of through a uh, not really the right way. Their um, convoy they were on hit a, a mine and like slightly fucked up a vehicle, but no one was killed and nothing. no one was injured. But everyone that was on that convoy got a CIB, which... You know, if you ask anyone who has a CIB, that's basically bullshit. Yeah. So all the people that got CIBs, um, they wouldn't wear them because everyone would make fun of them. Or they would kick their ass, actually, if they did wear it. So I, I was fortunate to not be one of those. Um, but I, I never got a CIB. Um, but while I was in Iraq, uh, towards the end of the deployment, almost uh, one month prior to us leaving, my very best friend in the army uh, committed suicide about, he committed suicide on October 30th and we redeployed um, like November 17th. So there was only a few people left who were staying back to be like the, the last people who were going to um, show the new unit what to do. And I was selected to be part of that because I was always um, the lead truck driver because um, I happened to be in first platoon, first squad. So that just happened to be me as always the lead vehicle in Iraq. But my friend Cooper was also assigned to stay back. Uh, there was probably like 15 people that got assigned and he was one of them. Um, but then he ended up committing suicide, which was quite the blow. Um, he was only 28 years old, I believe. When he committed suicide, and I was like twenty-two. Well, his birthday was October eighteenth, so it, he he must have just turned twenty. Yeah, yep, he had just turned twenty-eight or twenty-nine, one of the two. Um. Yeah, that was a quite the downer. 
Um, definitely didn't help my mental <laughs> mental state. Um, uh, yeah, then I since I was a PFC, I wasn't allowed to go back with him to be buried. They picked another guy, which kind of sucked because I was his quite good friend, and I think he would have wanted me to go, but since I wasn't the right rank, I wasn't allowed to go. So I had to stay back and uh, continue doing the right seat rides with the new unit. And then re yeah, and basically act as if nothing happened, even though like yeah, you know. uh, I just I, I actually I don't think I even cried. I just um, pretended it didn't happen. Not not even pretend. I just kind of like went numb basically and just stayed that way for many years. Yeah. But uh, yeah, went then got redeployed back to Germany um, in November or December, the very beginning of December two thousand eight, and then. Um, no, in 2009. Yeah, because I was there for a year. Mm -hmm. And then uh, stayed in Germany for a while. Um, ended up going to sniper school. Uh, getting to, into the sniper section. Then going to sniper school. I also went to ranger school while I was in the sniper section. But ended up uh, failing that. I was a double no-go on land nav. So anyone out there who's <laughs> ever been a double no-go um, at ranger school... Uh, I know what that's like. Um, definitely not the most. Well, uh, didn't you say that you like secretly didn't want to do it, so you just took a nap? Uh, yeah, I, I had had enough. I, I was already in the sniper section, so I was already like on my way to becoming a sniper, and it was like I really liked that. It was my kind of thing because um, I'm a, quite the introvert, mm -hmm. and most snipers, if you ever meet one, uh, are the same. Mm -hmm. They're either introverts or they're very strange types. Mm -hmm. But so I fit in really well with the sniper section. But I had already qualified to go to ranger school. I was already, like, I had to go because mm -hmm. I had already done pre-ranger. And uh, when I got to ranger school, it just wasn't for me because anyone who's been to ranger school knows that it's super um, hua. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everyone who knows what that is. Um, and that's not what I, I was not into that at all. So running around, screaming ranger all the time, super strict, you know, got to have a shaved head, no... A mustache or anything uh everything is extremely uh ri rigid um like even more so than the regular infantry mm -hmm. like everything is 100 percent rigid to the absolute detail so like mm -hmm. you know if you're doing your layout with your rucksack and you know it says three pairs of socks but you brought four well that you're wrong that you yeah. it said three so now you might have to do three hours worth of corrective training because you brought four instead of three because you didn't listen to what this list said mm -hmm. so it wasn't really my cup of tea and i kind of was just like uh, fuck it which looking back now i wish i would have just done it because it would have been a good experience overall mm -hmm. but um so i was just done with it i had passed uh, land nav already the day portion um but then you had to pass day and night and i ended up failing the night portion um but i was just sick of it so i just went and just waited until the cutoff time and then i just walked back to the starting area <laughs> and gave my card to a ri and he gave me a double no-go and then that was it and uh there, there were so many people that the only way for me to recycle w would have been to wait like i don't even know a month or quite a bit of time because so many people had came to that cycle that 
Um, for me to start over, it would have been a long period of time. So I ended up just uh, going back to Germany with no ranger tab, which was quite the embarrassment because uh, everyone assumed that I was just going to pass easily. Um, so that was a downer. But then I ended up going to sniper school right after that and passing, which was a good experience. That led me to the sniper section, which was cool. Did a lot of interesting things. Ended up getting kind of uh, meeting you. That's when I first met you around that time after uh, I graduated sniper school. It was 2010 that we met sometime in the summer, fall of 2010, I think. Yeah, so after that, I, I was past sniper school and ended up meeting you. Then... Uh, kind of reevaluating what was going on and ended up going to behavioral health, um, which if you go to behavioral health, if you're in the infantry, uh, that's a guaranteed way. I mean, you're guaranteed to be getting out of the army most likely because you can't be mentally unfit <laughs> and still be in the infantry. And uh, because the infantry, especially snipers, uh, you know, their main job is shooting. Mm-hmm. So you can't, be mentally messed up to be in that job so it led me to having to go through a med board which is a evaluation board to determine if you're uh need some sort of va assistance uh, based on your mental or physical ailment Mm -hmm. so ended up having to pcs from germany to fort bragg and then go through the med board process where uh, eventually I was awarded a 70% disability rating just kind of completely at random to me it seemed because some people would get a rating of 10% for like having a missing eye or something and other people would get 100% for having like way less so it didn't seem to make much sense how they decided that but yeah uh, I ended up getting out of the army uh Actually, before before that, we got married uh, in yeah. 2011, yeah. Um, and then I still had to wait until the beginning of 2012 to go to Fort Bragg, and then you came to live with me in Fort Bragg. Yeah, we lived in that hotel for a while while we were waiting to get the um, housing, the military housing on base or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, we stayed there for eight months, and then got that out. That was fucking hell. Because, well, our one neighbors were really cool. Um, Hillary and, what the hell was her husband's name? Do you remember? I can't remember. I just remember he was a specialist and he was a uh, combat vet yeah, heavily. Yeah, so they were really cool. They were the ones that lived directly to, like, the left of our house or whatever, like, right next door. And then there was these people across the street that we, I don't know if we tried to become friends with them or they tried to become friends with us, but... We didn't drive. Yeah, for sure, because they were very, like, all about the army. The army is the coolest thing ever, like, high five, man. (laughs) They were And the army wives were like that, too, and no, like, I was not like that. I was, you know, I was tattooed and whatever, and I enjoyed working, and I, I don't know, I liked my family, and they were very much just, like, I don't know, weird... Yeah, Not they were like your, me, army wives. They were your typical, like what you would think of as someone who was in the army, um, like wearing an army t-shirt and like a... Like they want everyone to know they're in the army at all times. Yeah, you and uh, they just happen to be non-infantry types also, so they were like super about the army. Um, 
but they were it, just they weren't for us uh, whatever that's mm-hmm. fine <laughs> for sure but yeah so ended up getting out uh coming back to wisconsin and then uh tony was pregnant while we were still in fort bragg and then our first daughter our daughter was born in 2013 uh while we lived in uh, came back and lived in wisconsin and then yeah, uh, we've been... This Yeah, this June will be 10 years. Yeah, we've been living... No. Oh, yeah, well, this June will be our 10-year anniversary. Yeah, wedding anniversary. Yeah, yep. it'll be our 10-year anniversary this year. Um, but yeah, all over this area. So, like, at the area that I grew up, which I'll get into when I talk about my, my stuff, um, we've kind of lived all over this area. We did briefly try to move to New Mexico, but, like, cost of living is the same as it is here. But you make way less there. Like, I don't know how people survive there at all. It's crazy. A little bit harder, yeah. Definitely harder. I mean, it's a great place to be, but financially, I don't know how people make it there. I don't understand. Like, even, like, their, you know, like, lowest pay or whatever is, it's insane compared to here. I don't know. It's just weird. Like, my pay for working as a lab assistant literally was cut in half. Like, I was making at least double digits up here, and down there it was single digits. Like, what the heck, you know? Yeah, definitely. uh, That was definitely, like, a, I don't know, a mind trip for sure. But we uh, settled on this area, and we've been here. We've been in this location for a few years, and uh, we've lived all over different parts of Wisconsin, uh, this area of Wisconsin. Yeah. Um... To be more the western, southwestern part of Wisconsin, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, around 2008 is when I got into conspiracy stuff. Uh, while I was still in the Army, uh, it led me into reading all kinds of different books and watching way too many documentaries and all that, which has led me ultimately to this point right now. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so now I'm going to ask you some questions. What's your favorite color? Favorite color is purple. Okay. Favorite author? My favorite author used to be Stephen King, um, but I would say my favorite author now is probably Tolkien, uh, I guess. Okay, um, favorite book? One book. Can't be a series. It's got to be a book. 1984 by George Orwell. Oh. If you have one piece of advice for the grand scheme of things and humanity in general, what would you, what would it be? Well, I would say realize that everyone is interconnected and we're all part of this one crazy uh, light universe, a dimension that we can't really see. So there's no need to have too many worries in this life uh, because everything is going to work out exactly the way it's supposed to be. So just... Calm down. It'll be all right. Favorite band? My favorite band, I would have to say, is Cox Bar. Maybe. My favorite oi band, uh, favorite American oi band, would be Templars. Um, (laughs) Also love GBH and the Exploited. Uh, All 80s punk music. uh, 90s uh, crust punk also, like uh, Anti-Schism. And Doom, uh, 
many other types. Uh, but what would you say is your best quality and your worst quality? Uh, I'd say my best quality is my work ethic or openness. And my worst quality is probably my lack of uh, uh, being able to interact with other pe- other people correctly. Like uh, you do, it's just you need someone like me who's not who's an extrovert who will at least open the doorway for it. Yeah, like, like you're fine once like once we get going, you're fine. It's just that initial whatever. If someone isn't there to like be the icebreaker then you don't really know what you're doing, but... Yeah, like, I have a hard time interacting with people I don't know right away. Like, I, it's not right. it's not easy for me to do. Yeah. Which can make it seem like... I, I'm not sure what other people assume, but it probably seems like I'm just a dickhead or an asshole, or I'm not really sure, but I just have a hard time interacting with other people that I don't know. But once I do know them, I feel I have no problem with it. Right. Yeah, I would say that's probably good. That's probably a good amount of information. <laughs> yeah, okay. I guess I can do my part now. Um, I'm sure you, if you've listened to this at all, you know my name is Tony. I'm Derek's wife. Um, I was born in River Falls, Wisconsin, March 9th, 1988, which makes me 33. So right now we're both 33 for a couple more days. Which everyone knows the magic number. Very odd, isn't it? Everything turns crazy. The year I turned 33. And you turned 33. I mean, what are the odds of that? Yeah, I know. It's weird. Weird things are happening, that's for sure. People just need to wake up and notice everything. Uh, anyway, born in River Falls, Wisconsin. My parents are divorced. My mom's been remarried and divorced a few times. Um, my dad eventually remarried. And my stepmom is a complete sociopath. Um... From my memories, I don't have... That's weird, because, like, I know that my mom, for a while, did have me and stuff, but, like, I don't really have a lot of memories with her. In my brain, my dad did most of the raising, and then eventually they went to court, and um, he won custody, so I lived with them primarily in very, very strict and mentally abusive household. So I didn't really see my mom for, like, a good six, seven years, um, and then once I moved out, um, I had, I, I didn't see my dad anymore. I still to this day. So it's been like 15, 16, going on 15 years. Um, and now I do have my mom, uh, as part of my life again. Um, and our relationship slowly is getting better. Um, growing up, I kind of lived all over this area. It's right on the border to Minnesota. So I kind of, you know, sometimes we lived in, in Minnesota, but again, right in this area, right on both sides of the, of the Mississippi river. Um, yeah, I don't know. Growing up, I always was just different. I wasn't like all the other kids and kind of even in my own family too. I was just kind of the black sheep. I was the oddball, I guess. Um, and eventually I became the little gothic chick, I guess. But that, because I'm from a small town, that wasn't like a thing. You know, gothic wasn't like a thing around here. So I don't know. I'm I think it's pretty safe to say that I was, like, the first gothic person in this area. Because um, I went to school. At in, least at that time. At Maybe that time. Maybe in the early 90s there may have been some. Maybe. Possibly. But, again, this area just 
it's not like that because it's, it was, you know, I mean, it's still small, but it seems smaller than farming community, right? Um, so a very rural farming community, very rural farming area. Um, so anytime anyone is different, like you're doomed pretty much. Um, and that, that's kind of how it was for me. I just never felt like I fit in anywhere, and um, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't, I just didn't fit in quite right anywhere. Um, so I kind of, I became gothic to kind of more or less protect myself because it was like, I, it was almost like a barrier because then I immediately knew who was a kind person, who wasn't a kind person based on how they treated me, based on how I looked. And like, I understand how, you know, people can justify that. Well, you looked ridiculous. So of course you're going to get, you're just asking for trouble, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, like it, you should teach your kids to treat everybody right. You know what I mean? Because it was very obvious, like, who just was genuine and kind and, or who was raised to be genuine and kind, you know, because that's who became my friends at, you know, at that point in my life. Um, it was all the people that saw me for me because though I was gothic, I wasn't, um, I wasn't an introvert. I wasn't closed off. I was very sarcastic, very funny, um very extroverted, very outgoing. Um, so I don't know. I, so obviously like the people that did become my friends, some of them I'm still friends with, like they saw past how I looked and never brought it up. You know, it was never a thing that we talked about. It just was, even though they weren't like that, that's, they just accepted me. Um, so I got lucky to have the friends that I had and, and the couple that I still do today actually. So, um, yeah, but I, I mean, I'm one of those people, you know, like, some people, like, loved high school and loved all that. Like, no, I would never, like, want to go back to whatever. I mean, not that it was bad or, like, traumatic for me or anything, because eventually people kind of left me alone. They didn't pick on me after a certain point in my life because I was still going to stand up for myself because, again, like I said, I was not an introvert. I was not closed off from that, so if someone threw some shade at me, I was going to do it back. Um, and eventually people just kind of left me alone and didn't really care. Um, but like some of my friends still got picked on, even though they looked normal comparatively. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And then right out of high school, after I moved out, I was working two full-time jobs, um, at nursing homes. Um, my first apartment was actually like, I don't know, two blocks away from my one job that I had. Um, it's just a little one bedroom apartment. I paid $400 a month for it. He wanted $495, but it was kind of a shithole, um, place. So, like, they had, it was an old, like, Victorian style house that had been sectioned off into different chunks. And then that guy had rented off those different chunks into, you know, where apartments and whatever. Um, so, um, the floors in there were, like, really nice, beautiful hardwood floors, but the apartment that I eventually had. I worked out a deal with them because the floor, which once wasn't this nice hardwood, was painted gray, but then had, like, I don't even know what to explain. Like, we took huge round sponges, like huge ones, and got paint on them and splotted them on the floor. It was a bunch of different colored, like, white, gray, black sponge spots. I don't know who or why. On the ground? On the floor? On the floor, yeah. How could you do that? I have no, I have no idea. I don't, I really don't know. Um... And, like, all the walls were fucked up, and, and, I don't even think, I don't even know if there, like, was 
any new paint since like the very first time it was ever painted. So it was like kind of gross, discolored, um, like weird yellowy stained kind of stuff. So I worked out a deal with them and said, you know, if I put my own money into the place to fix it up and, you know, like repaint the floors, redo everything, essentially like we can knock off the $95 a month and he agreed to it. So I got floor paint, I repainted the floors, repainted all the rooms. Um, I put in a few new, like, um, not appliances, but, uh, hardware stuff, you know, like for the cupboards and doorknobs and locks and stuff like that. Um, so we got $400 a month. I lived there for a while. I, um, met my first husband before I was out of high school through my best friend at the time because she was dating his best friend at the time. And they, so my friend get ended up getting pregnant in high school and I was supposed to be the godmother to her son. Um, so my first husband was the godfather to the son. And so we met through them and... I was young and dumb, like, he was not nice to me then, and then we got married and he wasn't nice to me then either, but I had gotten pregnant, um, with my son when I was 19. I had miscarried once before that, um, that was fairly traumatic. I wasn't super far along or anything, I think it was, like, 12 weeks or less, a little under 12 weeks, I think, but that was kind of traumatic, and then got pregnant with my son, and... I guess I assumed, again, young and dumb, I assumed that because he said that he wanted to be a dad too, like that was his, that's why we kind of connected because we were both kind of outgoing, wild people, but we both had this commonality that we wanted kids young and whatever. So I, I assumed that he was kind of, you know, going to step up as well, but he was abusive kind of mentally, somewhat physically, etc., etc., and... He was great through labor and having my son, because I found out I had preeclampsia, which was very, very scary, because it was, um, I went to the clinic in the ten next town over, and I had, like, the worst case of preeclampsia they'd ever seen without someone actually stroking out and, like, dying from it, essentially. Say the name again. Preeclampsia. Okay. Why, did I mumble it? Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, so, um... Eventually had Connor, Connor, my son, via C-section after days and days of laboring because they didn't they didn't want to do a C-section right away, simply because I was too early. Um, that hospital had a protocol like you couldn't be before thirty five weeks or something like that. Um, but then I, I think I had him like the day before I turned like thirty five weeks, something like that. Um, but he luckily he was perfectly healthy. I know when we did like the the bigger ultrasound where they like. Um, can tell you if it's a boy or a girl or whatever. Um, they said that he was a pretty large baby at that at that point and that he was like in the 90th percentile at that point. So when I had him, even though he was like a month and a week-ish early, um, he was like fully formed and, and big enough. He was almost six pounds actually. So thinking about that, because I know they say that like you're last month of pregnancy every week the baby gains a pound so by that theory alone he should have been like a nine ten pound baby at least yeah so um so yeah he was born he was healthy got very lucky his lungs were developed he did have a little trouble eating at first but otherwise he was fine but my son really it was like what opened my eyes and 
made me see my relationship with my first husband for what it was. Like, I knew it was bad, but, like, pride and stubbornness alone would have made me stay with him had I not had my son. And eventually, just, like, one night, I was home alone again after working. And I was really the only one working. Uh, my husband did work um, on and off. Sometimes he'd get fired a lot. Didn't ever help pay with bills or anything. And he didn't come home again, so I knew he was out drinking and smoking pot and whatever and cheating, as he usually did. So, anyway... Like, I just had enough, and I remember just, like, crying, and I walked into my son's room, and he was just sleeping, and I'm, like, looking at him just peacefully there, and I'm, like, I do everything with you. I literally support you. I physically take care of you. I work my job. Like, I don't need him in my life. Like, fuck this shit. So, and because he was kind of abusive and stuff, I was fairly smart about it. I packed up all his shit um, that night, and then... Um, I called the non-emergency hotline to the police department. I told them kind of my situation. I was like, look, I'm going to tell them that he can't live here anymore, blah, blah, blah. So if I call, you need to come right away. So, and then I just, um, called him at work the next day and told him like his shit's going to be outside. The police already know. So if he acts up or whatever that, um, that they'll come and he couldn't really do much about it. I mean, that really wasn't the end of us, end of us. Because we still fought on and off for a while and had a lot of difficulties with my son. He didn't take him for when he was supposed to half the time. Eventually, I won custody. Um, I still let him see him uh, as long as he was with, like, uh, his parents, so so my son's grandparents. Um, And then I met you when Connor was... Two or almost two. So I had actually... Two around there. Yep, so I'd actually moved out of my apartment and into a house that I was renting. Um, And, oh, I loved living at that house. It was pretty cool for me to know that I could afford that house. And at this point, I was working one job and making enough money to support my uh, son and everything. I mean, I wasn't making great money, and money was extremely tight, like, to the point where I wouldn't eat sometimes and whatever. But... I still did it on my own, and that was pretty awesome. And then I met you online. So he was, Derek here was stationed in Germany at the time, and I met him online. Um, he, I don't I don't remember what website it was, but anyway, he had reached out to me, and then we just started emailing back and forth from then on. And then December 26th of 2010, you came to visit me the first time mm-hmm. here in Wisconsin, and it was just kind of like fate sort of like everything about our like there was a lot of weird signs that we both kind of connected um thinking wow like maybe we really just are meant to be together a lot of weird things that like didn't make sense right um but yeah and then we got married the following june and we've been together since then yeah um yeah, I don't know. And then we had our daughter. So, yep, I moved down to North Carolina when you came over here to Fort Bragg. What year was that? That must have been 2012? 2012. 2012. And then 2013, I was like 30-some weeks pregnant when yeah, we when moved we back. And we, didn't even have, back. and we didn't even have a place to move back to. So it kind of sucked and kind of screwed us, honestly. But my mom had, um, they had, my mom and her boyfriend had actually built a house. So they had their old house still on their property, but they weren't using it. And they had actually offered to rent it to us for like a thousand dollars a month or something, but we wouldn't have to, you know, everything would be included, like electricity, heat, all that stuff. Yeah. And then like right before we were supposed to move back, they 
kind of more or less retracted that offer out of the blue. And, like, yeah, I was, like, 32 weeks pregnant, roughly, or something. Something like that, yeah. So, it was like, oh, shit, what the fuck are we going to do, you know? So, we had to pack up my son, who's now almost five, um, pack up all our stuff. The Army moved most of our stuff back, but we still had to drive back. So, we had to drive, like, 20-some hours back up here. I was huge pregnant. Oh, it was awful. And then, so, we had to stay with my, at the time, friend um, in Zimbrota, Minnesota. And literally slept on a blow-up mattress for a couple of weeks until we found an apartment in Pepin, Wisconsin, to live in. And luckily, I mean, kind of just in the nick of time, because we had to find a hospital yet and do all that stuff. We found an amazing hospital and had my daughter there um, beginning of March. So her birthday is, like, right next to mine. Um, had her. Luckily, she was healthy. There was no complications with this pregnancy at all. It was a great pregnancy had her and then we ended up attempting to move to New Mexico and then we moved back and then we ended up because we kind of lived on and off at that one Hager house that I originally moved into after my apartment that I was telling you about I loved living there it was great the only hiccup was that there was like no yard really um and I always grew up in like the country country so like having anything around me was really weird and I didn't like it that aspect of it we ended up buying a house um, outside of Ellsworth, Wisconsin, and we have a little over an acre, so we're kind of in a neighborhood, but not at the same time. Like, it's like a very rural neighborhood. So, yes, we have neighbors that are close, but especially where our house is at, like, it's pretty blocked off by, like, trees and just stuff. And, and honestly, this neighborhood is awesome because all the neighbors, like, they all really help each other and really care about each other and, like, look out for each other. And, like, so anytime we just see a random kid, we're like, oh, whose kid is that? Oh, better check in. Does the mom know what's going on? You know? Yeah. All that stuff. So it's pretty cool. Um, 2020, I was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. I have myxoid liposarcoma, um, cancer. So right, literally right at the peak and be, well, I should say the beginning of the pandemic, pandemic here. So-called pandemic. Yes. So-called pandemic here. I, I was diagnosed with that. Um, I went into... Uh, it was actually April 1st, April Fool's Day. I went in to the doctor. I had been dealing with pain and all kinds of weird, sort of minor symptoms, minus the pain. The pain was excruciating for months. And I went to chiropractors, doctors, massage therapists, and nobody knew what it was. They thought it was just a muscle. I just hurt myself, pulled a muscle. Nothing was working. And so I finally went to a new doctor in Baldwin. And they found a almost 18 centimeter mass in my abdomen and they immediately basically set me up with a surgeon um went through a major abdominal surgery they were supposed to just reopen my c-section but when i woke up from surgery i knew something was wrong because not only when i woke up was it far past the time they told me it was going to take but when i uh Eventually, when I, like, looked down when the nurse came in and changed my dressing, they didn't just open up my C-section. They cut me from the belly button down as well. So I had this weird, like, T-shaped uh, opening there. Um, but they couldn't get the, t- the the tumor out. They they realized that it wasn't what they thought it was. They thought it was just a really large, like, horrible ovarian cyst or something. Um, but when they went in there, they realized that it wasn't a cyst at all, nor was it anywhere near my ovaries or anything because they never ended up doing a CT or MRI before surgery, which 
I even asked the doctor about, but they were like, nope, we don't need to do that. It's fine. Um, but so they removed it from my sacrum. However, they discovered that it actually went through my sciatic notch where like your uh, sciatic nerve goes, which is why I was having all the pain. Like through your pelvis. Through your pelvis. The hole of your pelvis. It would like go yeah. through there. So where your arteries are and all your major blood vessels, it goes through that and into my glute. So I had actually a second, like 16 centimeter mass in my glute and didn't even know it. Like I had no clue uh, uh, that this thing even existed in me. And which is really weird because I also had had a minor surgery September of 2019. So like six months before I had minor abdominal surgery to remove an endometrioma from my abdominal wall. Like how did that get overlooked? Something this big. Cause I mean, it's like the size, just the front part was like the size of a pot roast, you know? Yeah let alone the backside. So that started a really long journey that I'm still on now. Um, I did total, I did 10 months of um, chemotherapy. I did 25 rounds of radiation. I had to go to Los Angeles to do a limb sparing surgery. They left about 10 to 15% of the tumor behind. However, my pathology report was pretty amazing um considering uh this rare cancer typically doesn't do any of the things that they said it would um but i just what i'm maybe three weeks out from when i should have started chemo again something like that yeah something like that so it's been a really weird um transition into living again because you know with the quote-unquote pandemic my doctor had told me you know with chemo and stuff like i won't have much of an immune system which i really didn't um, that she didn't want me working because I worked in the medical field. So she's like, nope, I don't want, you know, like odds are you won't survive if you catch something. So I didn't work, um, which I don't know how people work through all their treatments. Like uh, I consider myself to be a pretty strong and high pain tolerance person, but it's been a trip. Let me tell you. Um, but yeah, so now this weird like transition now, it's like now I'm in the monitoring phase. So I go back in and well, now a little less than 60 days, but 60 days from when I should have started chemo again um, to do my next scan to see if it's growing, not growing, etc. So it's like, do I put my kids back in school? Because we've been homeschooling because of this too, because, you know, I, they can't bring anything home to me. Um, and I just don't want them dealing with the mask bullshit either. But it's like, do I start working again? Do I put my kids back in school? Do I not? Because obviously, like, any one of these future scans could send me right back to starting treatment again or whatever. So um, I guess I'll just take this moment to kind of advocate for sarcoma here. And if you have any bruises that won't go away or any pain that's very um, localized to one spot and won't go away or a lump that won't go away or is getting bigger or, um, or a lump that's causing a bruise, like go get it looked at and, my doctors, because we're small town stuff, actually a lot of doctors don't even know about sarcomas. So if you go in, bring it up just in case, just in the off chance that it is. Even if they tell you, nope, it's a lipoma, which is a benign fatty tumor that doesn't really matter. Tell them you want it looked at. Tell them that you want you it. You demand a CT and an MRI. Yep. And um, you want them, if they, for some reason, go into biopsy, you are demanding that you get a fine needle biopsy because again my hospital didn't know about sarcomas so right off the bat they screwed me by doing the wrong kind of biopsy they spilled cancer cells everywhere during that first surgery um so yeah advocate for yourself for sure um 
doctors don't know everything. They're human too. They make mistakes. Some of them are just arrogant, like my doctor was. He was, it was not a good experience. He was not a nice guy. Um, and kind of almost tried to like blame me for having the tumor almost when, when after the fact, and he was trying to explain everything to us, he was not very kind. Yeah, we, we plan to do a, an episode purely on the bullshit of cancer. Yep. So we'll um, probably go into more of my experience with that. Yeah. In that episode, but anyone who's ever gone through this experience of cancer or have to had to have chemo or radiation knows that cancer is a heavy pain and uh, highly um, usable thing for hospitals. I mean, right. It's a great money. It's a huge money maker. So we just never knew anything about cancer in any way. So we just assumed that when we when this all happened that we were going to be uh, going through like a process that's positive with people who really know what's going on, yeah, um, and like want to help you. But in reality, that's th- not how it is at all. At not least that's not that's not been our experience, I should say. But again, sarcomas are extremely rare, especially in adults, um, and I my my LA doctor. Doctor, uh, can I say his name? Maybe I can't. I, I won't yeah, say his no. name just for, I don't know, just just in case. Uh, if you want to privately talk to me about this, if you have cancer or, or have a sarcoma or whatever and you'd like to talk to me about that, feel free and then we'll go more in depth into it. But my, my LA doctor was absolutely amazing. You can tell that he is a genuine human being who actually cares about you. He's not in it for the money. You can tell that he is going to give you the best possible advice and everything. But all the other doctors that I have dealt with, they're not that way. Half the time, I'll ask them a question. They don't give me a straight answer or they just say, I don't know. And don't get me wrong. I know there's a lot of unknowns with sarcoma because, again, it's rare. They don't have a lot of things to go off of. Um, Just as an example, I've met three of the top doctors in the United States uh, who deal with sarcomas. And each one of them has given me a a different um, recommendation as to how they would have treated me. Uh, one of them wanted to cut lit- me literally in half. Essentially, they wanted to take half my pelvis, half my sacrum, and my entire right leg. Um, even though that makes no sense because, you know, like I said, that first surgery had already done me and they spilt tumor cells. So even if they would have cut me in half, doesn't mean that the cancer is out of me and gone. Right. So there's no point to that. Um, one was just going to leave it there. Uh, one would have used a completely different type of uh, chemo one would use a different type of radiation and how many like so it's very very crazy but it's very obvious that the hospital that I go to now especially like they don't give a shit the only problem is is there are not a lot of sarcoma centers um, around here or the United States really they're just kind of there's probably like a handful or two maybe so I can't get treated just anywhere you know like with breast cancer or you know, even prostate cancer or a lot of those common ones, you can get treated anywhere, any hospital. I can't do that, you know? Yeah, and so. if you're not, if you don't have one of those cancers, I mean, they're not really putting much effort into figuring those cancers out. Right, they're not They're not spending their time trying to figure it out. Uh, like, like, I don't know what causes it, why, why it happens. They don't have a cure for it. They don't even really have a technical treatment plan for it because, like, my whole treatment was... A wait and see treatment, yeah, just like guessing and uh, yeah, just guessing and constant whatever. rounds of chemo, constant basically. rounds of chemo, and and none of them even knew how many to do before they stopped. Um, 
they debated on how many rounds of radiation and 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 what kind of radiation to use and uh, you know like like my uh I have a family member that was just diagnosed with breast cancer and like the day that she went in to talk to her doctor about it they had a whole plan for her she'll you'll do this many rounds of radiation you'll um you'll have surgery blah 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 like from day one like for me it was not that it's well we're going to start with this see what happens. If that works, then we'll keep doing it. If it doesn't, we'll switch to a new chemo. If that doesn't work, we'll switch to a new chemo until one does work and, and, and we'll see what that one does do. Blah, blah, blah. So it was a lot of wait and see the whole time. And none of them are addressing anything to do with your other parts of your body. So Right. So there's no... <laughs> that's because I'm a very why person when it comes to the medical field because I myself have always, since day one, worked in the medical field. So... I don't like to pill myself. I want to know, uh, like, what's causing these symptoms to happen so that way I can fix the problem, therefore get rid of the symptoms. Yeah, you don't want you know? to just treat the symptoms exactly. because that doesn't stop but that's, the problem. And, that's, and I've said that from day one to my doctors, what can I do to help myself? They told me not to take vitamins. They told me not to, to uh take all these extra things that should be theor theoretically beneficial because chemo takes all that away from you. So I completely ignored them and took all my vitamins because, I mean, I wasn't eating. Uh, you know, my blood levels dropped crazy low. Some of them really high, I guess. Some of the, like, my liver and kidney function ones went really high, which was dangerous for a while, but eventually they, they settled back down. But, um, yeah, it just, they don't they don't help you in those regards. Um, so now I have a holistic doctor alongside my actual, um, like traditional medical doctor. And even my holistic doctor is like, no, you should be taking all these kind of vitamins. There's just certain ones that you shouldn't take that can sometimes interfere with chemo. But like, why tell me to get rid of all of them? Why not research that and then tell me which ones not to take? You know what I mean? Like, and any question that I have for my doctor is it's, I don't know, I'm not sure, we'll just have to see. But, like, my holistic doctor, like, she'll literally break it down for me in terms of right down to the molecule of what's helping your body and what's not. Like, or if she doesn't know, she'll just give you abundant amount of information so you can figure it out. Yeah, you can decipher <laughs> it for yourself, which she's only done that to me once. Usually she has an answer for me. So, yeah, I don't know, that's kind of been my life story for the most part, I guess. Um, it has not been an easy life. I'm sure a lot of you can relate to life kind of kicking you down all the time, but I think overall we've been fairly positive through it all, you know, and I mean, I have my bad days, uh, but I think I definitely have more good than bad. And I've definitely over the last year of dealing with cancer, I've definitely changed my perception of things for sure. Um, I don't think about things the same way which um, I'm going to get into with that because if you are some of the ones that have been listening to my um, true crime episodes on Tuesday, uh, that's been really difficult for me actually um, because I'm just not thinking about things the same way anymore and I want to do things that help people and do things that make me feel positive. So I've decided that I'm not going to do a true, time, true crime Tuesday anymore. I'm going to change it to a Miracle Monday. Um, I want to talk about miracles and positive things and I'm actually going to start with some of my own because um, 
I'm not going to go into it now, but when we were out in LA, I had some pretty big ones happen that, you know, I, before, um, this journey, I was not religious in any way, or, uh, I, I don't know how you want to say that. I didn't really have a belief system in, in that regard. Um, but this has definitely opened my eyes up and now I see signs all the time. Like it's, it's insane. Um, once you actually start putting stock into some of that, some, you know, like a belief system and start thinking on it and changing your perception, you start to notice things around you. And though some of my miracles have been and my signs have been very big, I'd say 95% of them are so small, but they're there if you look. So um, I've been very grateful to be one of the people who have taken this um, negative life experience and turned it into something that bettered myself because I was not in a good place before cancer for sure. My anxiety was out of control. Um, I, I mean, you remember like that day that I, you were like, you didn't even know what to do. Like that one day that I was like washing walls and like losing my ever loving mind. You were like, you just told me to stop and you're like, I don't know what this is, but I'm guessing you need to talk. Cause I had never done that before. I think that was like my I don't like mental breakdown moment. Like yours was joining the army. Mine was, yeah, I don't know what, I don't even know what happened that day that caused it. I just snapped and because I wasn't living the way I knew that I should be living. I wasn't doing anything that made me me anymore. And I was, I had really fallen hard into the, what people think is the American dream, which is going to work every day. And, Having, having a house, house having and cars, um... having new cars and you got to have bigger this, better that. I, you know, I had really fallen into that, but subconsciously, like, I know that that's not who I am. That's not what I care about. And that's not why we, we're both not like that. Right. And we, we got together to be our own thing and, and go against the system. Right. Exactly. That's why we initially were drawn to, to each, each other, other. Like, because we both thought that way we like we didn't want to work as jobs and do all these things we want to do artistic things or just whatever we want to do and uh, live just um independently from the system in a positive way uh with nature if possible right so that that this whole experience mm. of cancer and the last year has hyper um hyperized our way of thinking, uh, which has caused, you know, starting a podcast and uh, trying to come up with a way to where we can live free in a society that is basically a change. Uh, right. So we're trying to figure out a way, um, which I think, you know, the majority of people out there listening are also in that same boat, but it's obviously hard to break the chains, you know? <laughs> That's why everyone is, is chained, you know. It's hard to get something when you have nothing. Uh, so that's where we're at now with this podcast and uh, everything that we're trying to do. We're trying to make our own way in life in a positive way without having to be in the system so that we can spend more time together as a family and raise the kids correctly so that they're, so they don't become slaves to the system like we were. And... Uh, that's really our main goal and to lift up everyone listening uh, or everyone that we, we come in contact with so that they can go on to the positive way of thinking and living also. And uh, that's our main goal, basically. 
Um, conspiracy is, is kind of what led me into that uh, originally because every conspiracy you listen to, eventually it gets back to spirituality and why are we really here and you know it seems like there's obviously something going on uh in the world and the people in power a supposed power at least uh they know all these secrets i believe and they're hiding it from the mass of people because once we find out that we are actually in control and we're sovereign individuals uh that don't need their system uh you know that's the last thing they want so they try to ruin our lives with food destroy our minds through public education uh ruin our health with poison gmo food fluoridated water chemtrails in the skies uh garbage television garbage music industry uh but yet still we are here today um even though we've been put through the ringer right. uh, as a human race to be uh, basically stomped down on by the system. Um, we're coming to a point in life where more and more people are w waking up from that system and are realizing that we actually have all the power, and uh, which we do. And well, and just, we will just, win. just in general, that there's fucking more to life than... Work, come home, watch TV. Work, come home, watch TV. You know, drink go on beer, one, go watch on, football. Go on one veg, uh, vacation a year to a designated Disneyland to stand in lines, you know. Right. <laughs> like, that's been huge. And like I said, before I'll, before cancer, like, my anxiety was through the roof. But now that I've sat and had time to, like, think about things and put things in perspective. Like I've really worked on my anxiety. Like, don't get me wrong. I still get it, but it's more situational now. Like an, I would assume it would be for a normal person. Um, like I don't stay up all night worrying about, uh, I don't know what, something dumb uh, that I have to drop the kids off at four o'clock the next evening somewhere. And, but to, to do that, I have to, I have to shower first, so I have to have this much time to shower, and I have to do this, and I have to do that before I can even do that. So before I can do that, I have to do this, and before I do that, I have to do that. Like, that's literally how my brain would work all day long, all night long. Like, my muscles were constantly in a state of, like, tense, tenseness, like, at all times. Um, I just felt claustrophobic at all times. Like, I've really worked through that a lot. So I know it's possible to do. It's just a lot of changing your perception and and how you think about things and learning to accept certain things as well, you know, but, but yeah, so this year has definitely been a huge, um, not only a trial, but a hurdle. Like, I feel like we've overcome a lot too. And I know that most likely my journey with cancer is not over, but I'm grateful for the break in chemo that I'm getting right now. I'm grateful for the thought process I'm on. I'm grateful for the positivity that I feel and whatever, you know, so that's pretty much my life story, I guess, in a nutshell, to keep it simple. Favorite color is green. Oh yeah, what is your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Oh, what genre? Favorite comedy movie. Comedy movie? Fuck. Uh, probably Dirty Love or Step Brothers. Probably Dirty Love, though. Okay. That's probably my top fave movie favorite band that's really hard all these years it's been green day because 
Green Day is very nostalgic for me because that got me through like my hardest times. Green Day's music has got me through my hardest times. But then Derek bought their new album for my birthday and I don't know what the fuck that is, but it isn't Green Day anymore. So I don't know if they're my favorite anymore. <laughs> it's making me question it for sure. Um, but I like all music. I I am not like a closed-minded person where I just like uh, punk or I just like country or I just like 80s or just like 50s. I like everything. The only thing I really don't like is anything new like the last five years. I don't I don't listen. I, I can't even tell you the last time I actually listened to the radio um, other than my oldies station that I that I usually listen to. Yeah. Um, but I listen to a lot of oldies. I listen to punk. I listen to 80s. I listen to country. I, I just, anything, because nowadays, all genres sound the same. Rap, yeah, everything pop, is auto-tuned. Yeah, rap, pop, country, you know, all that, it basically, basically is the same fucking Illuminati sound. Illuminati special for every genre. Yeah, so I don't, I don't listen, I don't listen to anything new, I guess. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I could give you a favorite band right off the top of my head, because I'm questioning it now, but, but it always was Green Day, for sure. Favorite color? Green, yep, I said that, green. Um. But like grass green, like I like like the vibrant, rich earth green. That's the green I like, for sure. Um, thing that makes you afraid? Centipedes. Oh yeah, centipedes. I'm not afraid of much, but them bastards. No, I think that was like maybe the first time you even seen me cry. It was the first time I saw a centipede, because I, okay, just riddle me this, all right. Fucking snakes, okay? They have zero legs. I do not mind snakes, not one bit. Those bastards move around just fucking fine, and they got no fucking legs. Why the fuck you gotta have that many legs? <laughs> For what? I don't know. For what purpose? Ugh. Ugh. God. Yeah, they're pretty gross. Just no. Just nope. That's pretty much the only thing. I do have... Actually, it's funny. My friend and I had a conversation about this. I always thought I had a fear of heights, and she's like, no, you don't have a fear of heights. You have a fear of falling, which makes more sense because, like, it depends on how I'm being presented with the heights, if that makes sense. Like, remember when we went zip lining and we went up that tower, but you could see down through the stairs because they were like those mesh metal stairs? Yeah. That freaked me the fuck out. But I could be, like, on a mountaintop and it's fine. Like, that looking down. And the actual zip lining didn't really Yeah, and the, the zip lining didn't phase me at all um so yeah i think she might be onto something it's more the fear of falling not the fear of actual heights itself um but yeah but i but i try to push through that type of stuff anyway and still yeah you've gotten way better about that over the years yeah and well i I still yeah i still try to like push myself to do it even if i'm fucking scared just because I, i i don't want it to hinder experiences in life I, I don't want that to be a hindrance for me so yeah what would you tell the audience uh, just a, I don't know inspirational thing to say um if you had to pick one if I had to pick one I would tell people to work on themselves like I, I don't know if people just kind of like what I was saying today um to my friend's mom you know, it's like people hit a certain age and they just assume that they mentally stop growing and stop learning. Well, you fucking shouldn't. You know what I mean? Like, 
you're supposed to continue to grow and expand your mind and and all that and your perception of things um yeah, I definitely have not learned everything. I definitely don't know right. everything. Right, but it's just like people just like give up on themselves and learning new things or um, or bettering themselves. Like I said, I had anxiety and instead of going to the doctor to get pills for it, I just really started hashing away at like, what's the root cause? And for me, it was literally um, just one, I was doing too much like stress stuff and and not taking care of myself. Like I'm, I'm a giver, so I'm, I'm very much like I want to help other people at all times. Which is fine, but I also need to sit, learn to say no and help myself at times too. And then working through my past traumas instead of like just having them, I would literally like go back in them and relive them and like break it apart and feel everything, just feel it all. And then usually by the time I was done feeling all of it and hurting again, I would come to like an epiphany or some clarity after I couldn't cry anymore. It was just like, oh, that's all this was. It had nothing to do with me or it did have something to do with me, but this happened in this way and whatever. Like now looking back as an adult on my childhood traumas, it's such a different perception. And I even struggle now sometimes looking back at them and seeing it as something bad because it happened to me. But if I like take like say I take my my child and and put her in place of me and it happens I'm envisioning it happening to her the what happened to me there's no way I would allow that to happen yeah so then I know it's wrong so that's kind of how I work through my past traumas is I, I envision someone else that I love in that situation and then I can see it for what it really is because for myself I just assume like oh I deserved that or um, you know, I rationalized it somehow because it was me. Mm-hmm. I deserved that or I did something wrong or um, whatever just because it was myself. I couldn't see it for what it truly was, but I take someone else that I care about, put them in place of myself and, and then kind of rewatch the the memory happen. And then I know, okay, that was totally something that should never have happened because of whatever, X, Y, or Z, you know? Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I know, I, I, I just want to tell people, like, help yourself. Like, yeah, you might need doctor's help, and, and that's fine. Um, but get the help. Get the help from a doctor. Get the help from yourself. Get the help from a friend, or whatever it may be. And just don't stop bettering yourself and opening your mind to possibilities. Like, I just don't know when collectively we as a society just assumed we didn't need to help ourselves anymore but we do just because we're adults doesn't mean that we stop learning and stop progressing mentally emotionally and all that we just literally physically stop growing like that's it that's the only thing that really changed you know so i guess that's my advice to everyone pretty good advice <laughs> i guess yeah. all um, right anything else are you good you wanna I think wrap that's it up? pretty much it uh at least good enough for uh you know an introduction to our backstories a little bit and uh cool. well, hopefully that'll help everyone learn who we were yeah. who we are and if you have other questions or like i said you want to reach out about cancer stuff or whatever i have a blog out there you can literally read my entire story from a to z so if you're interested in that 
feel free to send us an email and I can give you that link. Um, DTDimension at ProtonMail.com. Yep, that's our, uh, that's our email. Um, and visit us at DoubleThoughtDimension.com. And you can find our podcast on Spotify, on <laughs> Apple Podcasts, on the RSS feed um, website. If you just go to the website, it has a link to the link tree. And through the link tree, there'll be all of our stuff. You can locate it from there. Um, you can also just type in our RSS feed to whatever podcast your app you're listening to. And you should be able to add us to, to there. And then it'll just update uh, as every time we post a new thing. Uh, feel free to donate to our podcast or through our website in any way you feel you if you received any value from this podcast feel free to send it back our way uh any way you choose is fine uh or none and you know uh we believe in the value for value system uh you know you should pay for what you receive value from um if you don't receive any value then you shouldn't pay but if you feel like you are getting value from hearing us then Feel free to return the value to us. Uh, anyway, is fine. Uh, you know, uh, email, uh, one cent, um, five dollars, whatever you want to do. Uh, and you can do that through doublethoughtdimension.com. Uh, just click on the donate button. Uh, there's also a blog on there, which I write occasionally. Um, you can also find... Uh, yeah, I think that's it, actually. So go to DoubleThoughtDimension.com, take a look, and uh, that just about does it for this episode. Yep, and uh, start joining us in the future here for Miracle Mondays. All right, and remember, if you're hearing this transmission, you are the resistance. Take care, guys. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>